Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. Last week we looked at God's greatness and we looked at it from the perspective of things that we consider to be great and how much greater He is than these. You remember one of the comparisons was the Scripture says that God measured out the heavens by the span of His hand, the span in the distance from the thumb to the little finger. And I told you that our universe is thought to be 20 billion light years across. That's how far light travels in 20 billion years. Overwhelming figure. Uh, and yet our God is so much greater than that. Some of you may have left last week being a little overwhelmed by all the statistics and all the numbers and, and man, how great God is. And that was part of the intention for you to be overwhelmed because God's so much greater than that. But today we're going to look at God's greatness up close and personal. We're going to bring it down from the universe to you as a Christian, as a believer. The book of Jude, that's the book that comes right before Revelation. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Jude. This book contains one of the greatest doxologies in all of Scripture, in my opinion. And in this doxology, we see the greatness of our God up close and personal. In verses 24 and 25. Jude says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now, in this doxology, Jude gives us three things about God's greatness. First, we have God's great power to keep us from losing our salvation. He says, to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Secondly, we have God's great promise to make us stand in His presence blameless without fault. And to make you stand in the presence of His glory Blameless with great joy. And then thirdly, we have God's great person. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Now today we're going to look at the first two, God's great power and God's great promise in detail. And I'll only briefly mention God's great person and save more of that for next week. But first, God's great power. The power to keep you and I saved. Jude first tells us of God's keeping power. To Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Now the word keep in the Greek is not the normal word used for keep, which means to watch over or to care for. Rather, this word that Jude uses for keep carries the idea of watching in case of attack. It means to keep someone safe, to preserve them, to guard them. It stresses safe custody 
while encountering dangers. In fact, this word is used by Peter over in 2 Peter chapter 2 to talk about God keeping Noah safe during the flood. He says there in verse 5, "...and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved..." Same Greek word that's translated keep in Jude, translated preserved here. "...preserved Noah, kept him safe, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly." You see, God kept Noah and his family safe even though the dangers of the flood was assaulting them. He kept them safe. He preserved them. And that's the idea we're having, that God preserves us, though we face great spiritual dangers in this life. Satan would like nothing better than than to destroy your faith and cause you to lose your salvation. And he does everything he can within his power to do that. But the good news is he's not able to do so. It's God who is able to keep you safe, to preserve you from stumbling and losing your salvation. Satan cannot, he is not able to cause you to lose your salvation because God's great power to keep you safe. First Peter Chapter 1 talks about this again. As Peter writes to us, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, there are three things that Peter tells us in this verse. First, and all of them have to do with our assurance of salvation. First, that God calls you to be born again. Now, you didn't have anything to do with you being born again anymore than you had anything to do with you being born the first time. Now, what part did you have in that? Nothing. Truth is, you couldn't have stayed in there if you'd have wanted to. Mama was pushing you out. I mean, and if that wouldn't work, the doctor would go in and get you. You didn't have anything to do with that. You didn't have anything to do with the beginning of your life. You didn't have anything to do with your birth. You were caused to be born the first time. Now, you can't get unborn any more than you can cause yourself to be born the first time. Well, now, carry that over into salvation because God gives us physical realities to help us understand spiritual realities. And I think God brought about the process of physical birth because He wanted to help us understand spiritual birth. It wasn't that because people are born physically that God said, well, now, let's see, maybe I can relate spiritual birth to that. No, I think the spiritual came first. And God in His wisdom said, now, I want people to be able to understand spiritual birth, so I think I'm going to not put people under a turnip uh, patch, but I think I'm going to have them born this way, so they can understand spiritual birth as well. Now, God calls you to be born again. You say, but what about when I ask Jesus to come into my life as my Lord and Savior? Well, that's just like you as a baby when you cried the first time. Now, once you were born, you had to take a breath. You had to breathe out and cry. Well, once God's caused a new birth in you, it's going to bring fruition, and you're going to come out and confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
But it's while we were dead in our sins that He caused us to be born again. Now, I stress this because if God calls you to be born again, you can't get unborn. You can't unbirth yourself. You can't lose it because God gave it to you. Now, if you could have done something to earn salvation, if you could have done something to save yourself, then it might be conceivable you could do something to lose yourself. But since you didn't do anything to save yourself, trust me, you can't lose yourself either. He calls you to be born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, for what purpose? To obtain an inheritance. Now, God calls you to be born again so that you could inherit. Now, in the days of old when, when people had masses of inheritance and, and they wanted to have an heir to pass it on to, and we still, if you have an inheritance, you want to pass it on to your heirs if you have one. But they would, would even adopt, if they had to, to have an heir to pass on the inheritance. Now, if a person went to the trouble of having a child so they could pass that inheritance on to that child, don't you think they would do everything within their power to see to it that that child lived long enough to enjoy that inheritance? I mean, how ridiculous would it be for someone to, to have a child for the purpose of passing on that inheritance, and then the child gets sick and they say, well, I can't afford to take you to the doctor. It costs too much. Because they put the whole inheritance ready for them to inherit it one day. They wouldn't spare anything to see to it that that child made it long enough, live long enough to inherit it. Well, God has prepared an inheritance for you and me who are Christians in heaven. And what does He say about it? He says that this inheritance is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. Now, don't you think if God has reserved an inheritance in heaven for you, that He's going to see to it you get there to enjoy that inheritance? Do you think He's going to let anything keep you from getting there? Do you think that He's going to allow anything to take away your salvation? Or anyone? He has gone to all this trouble to make an inheritance that's undefiled, imperishable, will not fade away. He's going to see to it that you and I get there to enjoy it. And then thirdly, who are protected by the power of God. Now, if it was left up to you and me, we'd be in trouble. It's like the little girl who was praying one day. And she said, God, please take care of Mommy. Please take care of Daddy. Please take care of my brother. Please take take, take care of my sister. But most of all, God, please take care of yourself. Because if something happens to you, we're all sunk. And you know nothing's going to happen to God. But you and I don't have to worry about being sunk. He is able to keep you from stumbling. Now this is important that you and I have assurance of our salvation. And so God goes to great lengths to assure us. And He takes some terminology we can understand. He takes the shepherd perspective to talk about the assurance of our salvation. Over in John 10, Jesus is speaking. And look at what He says. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who is greater, who has given them to Me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Look at that picture. Jesus is picturing Himself as a shepherd, and we are His baby lamb in His hands. 
He's carrying us in His hands. Now first, He says He has a personal relationship with us. He says, I know my sheep. By name, I know them. They know me. They follow me. There's a personal relationship there. Jesus knows you by name if you're His. Secondly, He says that He has given us salvation. Again, you didn't go out and get it. He gave it to you. He's not going to take it back. Thirdly, He says He's got you in His hands. And no one can come up and snatch you out of His hands. You can't even snatch yourself out of His hands. You think that lamb can get out of the hands of that shepherd? No matter how much wiggling and struggling that lamb might do, it's not going to get out of the hands of that shepherd. I mean, someone would have to be more powerful than Jesus to be able to pull you out of His hands. And if that's not enough, Jesus goes on to say, and the Father who is greater than all, who has the ultimate authority, has given you to Me, and no one can take you out of His hands. For someone to cause you to lose your salvation, they would have to take you out of Jesus' hands and the Father's hands. Impossible. So to say you could lose your salvation is to say Jesus lied. And He cannot keep you saved. Let's look at it from the banking and business perspective. First, there's the perspective of the vault. Over in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, For you have died and your life is hidden with God in Christ. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with Him in glory. Now you see the word hidden? The word crypt comes from that word. The noun crypt or vault comes from that word. What God is saying is that we are in His heavenly bank. We are in the vault. We're safe. And there's a double lock. In Christ, excuse me, with Christ, in God. That's a double lock. Not too long ago, I was visiting my mom and and she said, I want to go up and look in the safety deposit box. I want to catalog everything that's in there. I said, okay, let's go. So we went up to our local bank there and went in and said, we want to get in our safety deposit box. Well, first it was in this vault with this massive steel door that must be this thick. Now, the door was open because it was during business hours. But now, if it had been shut and somebody else had wanted to go in there, they would have had to go through that massive door first. Well, even though that massive door was open, there was another door with steel bars that was shut. So the lady had to take a key and, first of all, open that door with the steel bars so we could go in. Well, that still didn't give us the safety deposit box. She pulled out this uh, card, and we had to sign it. And our signatures had to match with the signatures on the card. Well, that still didn't get us into the safety deposit box. We had to produce the key. Well, once we produced the key and signed in, that still didn't get us in the safety deposit box. She had to produce the key. Because on that safety deposit box were two locks. She had to put her key in one lock. We had to put our key in the other lock. And we had to turn them both to open the box. Now, I call that secure. That's why it's called a safety deposit box. For someone to break in that safety deposit box, they would have to break through that massive steel door. They would have to get through that door with bars on it. And then they would have to get through those two locks into that box. Now, God is saying... We, our salvation is more secure because it's in the safety deposit box of heaven. 
It's in His vault in heaven. Your life is hidden. It is hidden in the vault with Christ in God. That's the double lock. With Christ, first lock. In God, second lock. For someone to rob you of your salvation, they would have to go through those two locks, the Lord Jesus and God the Father. That is an impossibility. Because notice what he says. He says that we are hidden with Christ in God, so that when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. God's going to see to it that when Jesus comes back, folks, in all of His glory, we who are His are going to be Revealed with Him in glory as well. Another business term is the seal. Over in Ephesians 1.13, Paul picks up this business metaphor, the seal. And he says, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, seals are used to represent power, to represent position. You all recognize this seal, don't you? It's the seal of the President of the United States. Whenever he speaks, you see this seal on the podium. When he sends out invitations to state dinners and, and other things, he puts his seal on that. And that represents his position. That represents his prestige, who he is. Well, that practice of seals goes all the way back to antiquity. Now, what you see now is an actual picture of a seal used in ancient times. Now, what would happen is that the person that had the seal would generally put wax on a document, soft wax, and while the wax was soft, they would press down this seal and it would leave the imprint on the wax. And that would be their seal. That would be identified them, their position, who they were. That was the business aspect of it. Now, there were three things that the seals represented. First, it represented ownership. It represented ownership. In the Western days, how did they identify whose cows? The brand, the seal. That's all that was, was a seal. Right? Ownership. You put your seal on something. That's yours. Secondly, it also represented not only Ownership, but security. You remember when the Jewish leaders came up to Pilate after Jesus' death? And they said, hey, you know, he said he's going to come alive from the dead, and we're afraid somebody's going to come steal his body and then go say he's alive. And so the Bible says that Pilate put a seal on the tomb. That didn't mean he got super glue and went all around the, the big rock and sealed it. No. The practice was to take a thing of wax and to place it on the rock and put his seal on it, and then take a cord and put it on the other side of the, of the entrance, uh, on the other side of the rock, on the other side of the entrance, and put, again, the wax, the cord, and the seal. So that the cord was stretched from the rock to the surface of the tomb. That means if anybody rolled the rock back, they would have to pull the cord loose and it would break the seal. Now, that seal, it's, that cord itself was not going to hold it. It was in wax. But it was what it represented. What it said to any potential grave robber was the power of the Roman government has sealed this tomb. You break that seal and you have incurred the wrath of the Roman government. So any would-be thief who had any sense at all seeing that seal, he says, uh-uh, I'm not going to have anything to do with that. 
The third thing that a seal was used as a finished transaction. When a transaction, business transaction, would be finished, the parties involved would put their seal on the document. That carries forth today, doesn't it? You go get a marriage license, they go in there and they put the seal on it. Notary public puts the seal on it. You know, our signature serves as our seal. Uh, some legal documents, it will say a picture seal. And the lawyers say that means you sign it right there. That's your seal, your signature. But you see, it, it connotes a finished transaction. Now, it's interesting how all three of these apply to the Christian. First, God has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. He shows that He is our owner. We belong to Him. The Holy Spirit comes and lives within you, and that's God's seal on you. He is the character of Christ stamped on you. Stamped on your spirit. He owns you. You belong to Him. An old devil comes around, and he wants to get a hold of you. What does he see? He sees that seal. He knows he can't have you. You belong to God. Secondly, it carries the idea of security. Because God's placed His seal on you, nobody can steal you away from Him. Nobody can overcome His power to keep you. Thirdly, a finished transaction. Our salvation is finished. There is a sense in which we have been saved. Our sins have been forgiven. We have been given a place in heaven. We have eternal life. There is a sense in which we're being saved. We're growing into Christ's likeness. And there is a sense in which we will be glorified with Christ. We will be saved totally. But let me tell you, it is so certain, it's a finished transaction. God's already put the seal on it and said, it's finished. It's done. It may not have happened yet, but it's done. Nothing's going to stop it from happening. It's going to be brought about. And so, we have the beautiful picture of our eternal security. And then there's a third picture. And that is of the down payment. Earnest money. Again, Ephesians 1.14 continues to say, The Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. A pledge of our inheritance. God has said to you and to me, I guarantee you, you're going to get that inheritance. And I'm going to show you my guarantee is going to be my Holy Spirit. He's the down payment. He's the earnest payment. Now, when I went to buy a house, I had to come up with some money that they called a down payment. Now, that money represented several things. First, it represented I was serious about buying that house. Because I had to put down thousands of dollars to say, I'm going to buy this house. Now, it also represented something else. If I, the next month, I mean, I could put down those thousands of dollars, and if the next month I couldn't make the payments, and I went in and said to those folks, look, you know, I just changed my mind. I don't think I really want this house after all. I really don't think I can afford this house after all. Do you think they would have said, okay, well, let us give you your thousands of dollar down payment back? No. They would have said, well, I'm sorry to hear that. Your credit's ruined, and we're going to keep that down payment. You forfeit the down payment because you couldn't perform and come through on your commitment, on your pledge to pay for this house. But God's put a earnest payment to show you how serious He is about bringing your salvation to completion, about giving you that inheritance that He has for you in heaven. And that down payment is the Holy Spirit. That shows you how earnest He is. He's given the Holy Spirit to live in you. Now, if somebody faults on their pledge, they have to, to forfeit the down payment. 
That means if God can't bring about your salvation, He must forfeit Himself, which is the Holy Spirit. And that is an impossibility. There's no way God can forfeit Himself. And so if God has truly saved you, He will bring you to salvation. You know, what about those folks that join the church and, and, and they get baptized and, and then they drop away and, and they just get into sin and we never see them again? What happened to them? They never got saved. That's what happened to them. Just because they walked it out, just because they said a prayer, just because they were baptized, that's no sign they were truly born again. Because if they had truly been born again, though they may have fallen away temporarily, they would have come back. Because God will see to it that His own are preserved because He is able to keep us from stumbling. Now, unless you think you don't have anything to do in the process, remember that baby has to breathe once he is out of the womb. You have a responsibility in this process, and Jude talks about that in the verse preceding, verse 21, where he says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Your job and my job, our responsibility is to keep ourselves in the love of God. See the beautiful blending of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility right here. You and I are to keep ourselves in the love of God. God saved Noah from the raging waters of that flood. But Noah had to build the ark. God is able to keep you from stumbling. And He will keep you from losing your salvation. But your job is to keep yourself in the love of God by faithfully obeying His Word, by faithfully attending church, by faithfully spending time in prayer, and by fellowshipping with Him and other believers. We keep ourselves in His love. That's our part. And He keeps us from stumbling. That's God's great power to keep you safe. Now, it even gets better. Let's look at God's great promise to make us stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. Not only is He able to keep you from stumbling, but to make you stand in His presence. Now, to present you blameless. Let's look at this word blameless for a moment. It means without spot. It means without blemish. It carries the idea of being clean and spotless. Now, I know that term especially speaks to you women. I can go in my laundry room right now, and I will see three, four, maybe five different stain removers. You know the topic of conversation at some of the athletic events that uh, my guys participate in? I've actually heard the moms, guys, while the game's going on now, in the heat of the game, I've actually heard the moms talking about what they use to get the stains out of the uniform and what they found to be real effective. It seems like everybody wants their son's uniform to be the cleanest and get the spots out. And when they're playing in that red dirt, it's tough, isn't it? Stain removers. Get that stain out. It seems like they take it as an affront on their motherhood if they can't clean that uniform. But clean those uniforms. Get them clean. Put this combination, that combination. Try this product. Well, sure enough, next week we got that product in our grocery basket. Because she's going to try that to see if that will clean them. Well, I want you to know God says that He is able to present you and me as His children spotless, blameless in His presence with great joy. Look in 1 Peter 1.19. The same word is used to speak of Jesus Christ and how blameless and spotless and unblemished He is. 
When Peter talks about us being redeemed, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the blood of Jesus. He says, but with precious blood, as a lamb unblemished, and that's the same word used in Jude, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. What does that say to me? That says to me that the Holy Spirit used the same word to talk about how blameless and sinless Jesus was that He uses to talk about how God's going to present me to Himself in His glorious presence one day. That means that when I get to heaven, God is going to present me there as sinless, as perfect, as blameless, as spotless as Jesus is. Hallelujah. Can you imagine that? Me, and i got to tell you folks, I'm stained. But when I get to heaven, buddy, it's going to be spotless. As perfect, as blameless as Jesus. Without fault. This is witness in the Scriptures over and over again. One place in Ephesians 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we would be holy and blameless before Him. God chose you for that purpose. That He might cleanse you. That He might present you in His presence holy, sinless, blameless, without stain. How? How can He do this? It was accomplished by Christ. As we see in Colossians chapter 1. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy, and as that word again, and blameless and beyond reproach. Through His death, Jesus took away the Christian's guilt and condemnation. He was our substitute. His blood is that perfect covering for our sin. His blood has washed us and cleansed us totally. And by His death, Jesus removed the sin barrier between us and God. And therefore, we can be reconciled to God. And that's what the word reconciled means. It means to remove the barrier. And through His death and resurrection, He removed that sin barrier. And He is able to present us before His glory, spotless, with His Righteousness and His holiness. Isn't that marvelous? I mean, what more could we want? Not only is He not going to let you lose your salvation, but when you get there, folks, He says you will be perfectly blameless, faultless, without spot. As righteous as Jesus. That's why He goes on to say, look, make you stand in His the presence of His glory, blameless, how? With great joy. People think, man, it's going to be awesome and fearsome to stand in the presence of holy God. And it will be awesome. And there will be a measure and sense in which it's going to be fearful. But let me tell you also, it's going to be joyful. When you realize that when you stand before a holy God, you're going to be as holy as He is. As blameless as He is, as righteous as He is, you can get excited and get joyful about it. Isn't that great? Because God is the one doing it. I will stand before God totally holy, totally righteous, like I have never sinned. 
Therefore, with great joy. That's the great promise. The great power. He who is able to keep you from stumbling. He'll keep you saved. The great promise to present you in the presence of His glory. Blameless. With great joy. Now the great person. Only briefly. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The great God is the only one who can save you. There is no other name given unto men whereby we might be saved in the name of Jesus. And this salvation, folks, is the grace of God. It is an act of God's grace. He saves you purely out of His sovereign goodwill and pleasure. We don't deserve it. We cannot earn it. It is a gift of His sovereign grace. That's a great God we have. Our only God and Savior, who is above all glory and majesty and dominion and authority. And He is eternal before all time and now and forever. When you think about the greatness of God, don't leave it out in a 20 billion light year size universe. Bring it till it's up close and personal. Because of that God that created the universe and measure it by the span of His hand. That's the great God who can keep you saved. That's the great God who will present you in His presence, joyfully, blameless. That's the great God that we serve, that we love. Will you fall before Him in adoration and in worship?